Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shibhavani. Imagine having skin that can tear at the slightest touch with resulting wounds that don't heal. That's the reality confronting people who suffer from epidermolysis bullosa, or EB, a rare and life-threatening genetic skin disorder. We're joined today by parents of a child with EB, who are working every day to care for their son and to advance the prospects of a cure for EB and other rare diseases. Heather Fulmer is a wound care and ostomy RN consultant. She received a Bachelor of Science in Nursing from San Jose State University and has extended wound care education from Emory University. Ryan Fulmer has a 20-year career in senior finance operations and management positions in the private and public sectors and is the owner of FEK Advisors, a business advisory and accounting firm. The Fulmers are co-founders of the EB Research Partnership and their child is Mikey, and I'd like to thank uh, Eli Leibowitz for making the introduction to the Fulmers in the first place. So thank you, Heather and Ryan, for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So I've obviously shared with our audience a bit of your background, and we spoke before the podcast, so I know a lot about you. But for their sake, maybe we can start, Heather, with you. Maybe give us some more career highlights, what got you into nursing, et cetera, before we go into, obviously, the meat of this discussion, which will be about EB and rare diseases. Sure, absolutely. And I just want to say thank you again to you, Tosmosis Elsevier. You know, for giving us this opportunity to advocate for our rare community like this on such a grand scale and to health professionals or future clinicians. So prior to having our son with EB, I had just finished up nursing school. I had completed a preceptorship in the NICU, and that's the unit that I really wanted to build my career in. I liked the complexity of the cases. Um, the challenge it provided and, you know, the advocacy component in the unit. And that's the unit that drew me. And then, you know, upon graduating, I took the NCLEX, which is a test that you take to become a registered nurse. And so I was probably around eight or nine months pregnant at that point. And then about a month after that is when I had our son, Michael. And it was about a week after him being in the NICU that my head come home and, you know, just really quickly a break from the NICU to take a shower, eat something. I had looked through the mail and I saw I had gotten something from the Board of Registered Nursing. I opened it up. It was my license and it was just such, I guess, a surreal moment. No worries. I can tell how pointed that was getting that right around the time of your son's birth. Yeah. So I had opened up the envelope and the issue date of my license was actually my son's birthday. Wow. It's like a sign almost, right? Yeah. So I became a nurse professionally and in my personal life on the exact same day. Wow. And yeah, as you can probably imagine, I kind of switched and redirected from going to the NICU to focusing my career on wound care after that. I've been able to fall back on that education and that experience, and it's helped you know my family and it's helped the nonprofit on many occasions. So that's kind of where I'm at. <laughs> yeah, no, certainly. And I know we, we spoke about how you gained that expertise in wound care, which we'll get more into. But one thing I commented on on our call and on other podcasts we've had with parents of people with rare diseases is all the hats they wear. Uh, you know, they become nonprofit leaders, their parents, obviously, they become caregivers, advocates, and also clinicians. And in your case, it was really interesting, Heather, because 
you know, when we were speaking, so much of what osmosis was started for was to educate nurses and doctors and health professionals. And you were pursuing that pathway before even becoming a parent of a child who, who needed the wound care and the, the rare disease advocacy. So really interesting and coincidental and or assigned divine intervention, however you want to take it. Um, let's turn to you, Ryan. I know your background also seems to have equipped you really well for the EB Research Foundation. Maybe you can give us a bit of that story. Yeah, so I'm a CPA by trade. I started my career at a KPMG Los Angeles and PwC Silicon Valley after graduating from Loyola Marymount with a accounting degree. Um, working in Silicon Valley most of my career allowed me to work with the startup companies from an idea to multinational corporations, seeing the issues that they face, seeing how new companies are started, how they grow the fastest. I've had a number of roles in other larger companies as well, but really enjoyed working with small businesses. My expertise in Silicon Valley was venture-backed startup companies. So I did about 30 audits of those a year. So that was fun. <laughs> to say the least. So, well, I, Ryan, I'll interrupt you there because we, you know, we just joined Elsevier last year. We're venture backed Series A, then we were deciding a Series B or this acquisition. And I will say the audit to get the acquisition was a lot of things, but I would, I would not say it was fun on the founder side of the thing. So, uh, I'm glad you do though. Yeah, no, and a lot of times we come into a company where a larger public wanted to buy them and they were never even audited before. And we kind of have to recreate the financials to help come up with what the purchase price even, because there were no real good numbers before that. But I really loved working with the, those type of people, the founders that were very involved in the business, usually were successful in other companies before and were trying to use their money to start some kind of new technology. Right. And then from that, that experience of starting companies, that's really served me well. Not only was were we the co-founders with some other families for the EB Research Partnership, I was also one of the founding board members and the CFO for the first five years of existence. So, I mean, we started out from nothing to pulling in $5 million a year at this point to having professional staff, a team at the WeWorks office in Manhattan near Union Station. And we have people working around the clock to heal EB. It's incredible. And, that, and we're going to get into this too. But I remember on our first conversation, you know, now knowing more about your background than I knew even before, kind of where some of those innovations around EB research funding and, uh, you know, backing other research uh, groups or startups that want to do this and doing innovative licensing models seems to be coming from. Um, because that's certainly something I think a lot of rare disease patient groups could could learn from and hopefully emulate in some ways. So before we get into that stuff, let's go to EB and let's go to Michael. You know, since you're the nurse uh, and clinician on this call, uh, Heather, maybe you can talk to our audience a bit about EB, the impact it has, and what treatments are available, and what, what do you think some of the promising potential cures are? And then we'll go to you, Ryan, to talk about maybe Michael's day-to-day uh, -day experience with EB. Okay. I'll start with more of a technical definition of EB. So epidermalized sclerosis, or EB for short, is a rare, life-threatening connective tissue disorder that impairs the skin's ability to tolerate friction or the shearing motion and results in skin tears and blistering that can equate to a third degree burn. So normally the skin has proteins that aid in the structure and durability of the skin, but with EB, um, the genes that are responsible for making sure the skin stays intact have mutations that, you know, prevent the gene from performing specific tasks. And so, you know, your largest organ is your skin, and it's the first line of defense against injury and illness. So when somebody has a diagnosis of EB, their skin is like tissue paper, or as we like to say, as fragile as a butterfly's wing. In the words of my son, he likes to say, like, he, when he sees people getting lost at the definition, he's just like, 
my skin's missing Velcro. So he's like, there, there's no glue holding the top layer to the bottom layer. That usually kind of helps clear things up. The um, result is that even a minor amount of friction, like say from a shirt seam rubbing on your skin, a handshake, a hug, walking, those can end up causing significant open wounds and blistering and other complications. There are four major types of EB and the more severe types. Um, it's not just the skin that is affected, but the mucosa as well. So you're looking at blisters in the mouth or throat, the eyes, um, gastrointestinal tract, you know, and it's this chronic state of having open wounds all the time that results in a greater risk for serious life-threatening systemic infections and an increased risk of developing an, an aggressive form of squamous cell carcinoma that can lead to premature death. Other, you know, major complications that can accompany EB or heart and kidney failure there are also multiple complications that can affect the quality of life. Um, and I know I'm kind of long-winded with this part, but, you know, just to name a few of those complications, you know, wounds become chronic instead of healing, they stay open. Um, scar tissue can form over, you know, your larger joints and, you know, then it impairs your ability to move around. And a lot of these children and young adults, they end up becoming wheelchair bound. And then with the repeated scarring and injury that happens to the hand, the fingers can fuse together. And what happens is it forms a mitten deformity. Um, and that fusion between digits can also happen to your toes. Um, another, you know, commonplace thing is a lot of these kids and young adults have malnutrition and anemia because of the high demand, you know, for calories that's required for wound healing. And if you can imagine, so you're getting these blisters on the outside, but you're also getting these blisters on the inside. So, you know, you're trying to take in these calories, but if you constantly have a raw throat, it gets kind of difficult to kind of maintain the amount of calories you need. Um, and then just to, you know, compound that, you know, you get these blisters and then these strictures form, and then you need these serial dilatations to open your esophagus back up so that you can eat. And then the cycle just repeats itself. You eat, then you get blisters, strictures form, and then you need dilatation. So it's this very vicious cycle. And is that why you, because I knew about the wound care, and we get to maybe talk about some of the wound care training you've done and, and education, but that's the ostomy part as well? Is that why you got into ostomy because of that issue with EB in general and Mikey specifically? Um, uh, no, um, for Michael, the, he doesn't have an ostomy. He, he does have a G-tube, but the ostomy portion, that just came as a professional development along with wound care. Cool. Awesome. So some of the other complications that kind of go along with this, um, also there's an amount of scarring that happens in the eyes. So, you know, with this repeated blistering in the eyes, you get scar tissue that forms, and then that can also lead to blindness. So it's kind of this whole body degenerative disease. It's just, it's all encompassing. So that's kind of the overview of like what EB is and how it affects the body. Um, there's currently no approved cure or treatment. Um, the only option we have right now is palliative care. So that means, you know, dressings, and that means using advanced dressings, ones that, you know, absorb drainage, fight infection, maintain skin integrity, things like that. And usually these dressings are applied to the entire body. Um, and even if there weren't any wounds present, you would still end up covering and bandaging the, the body just so you prevent the wounds from happening prevent some of the deformities from happening, just delay 
any complications and hopefully, you know, maintain a quality of life. One of the biggest complaints with EB and the bandaging and everything is actually puritis or itchiness. And, you know, these kids and young adults often become, you know, their own worst enemy because they get itchy and then they scratch and then they end up opening up and causing these wounds and having to be bandaged even more. So I would say, you know, besides doing, you know, the extensive bandaging, you know, things I would add to, you know, a plan of care would be, you know, administering eye drops, maintaining, you know, a high calorie diet, regular physical therapy, uh, and serial procedures like dilatations and IV iron infusions and blood transfusions, just, you know, to ensure a decent quality of life. One way to recognize a child or young adult with EB is, you know, you're going to see them come in and they'll have layers of bandages on. And that'll often include um, like Vaseline gauze or zero form. You're going to get rolled gauze. You'll see contact layers like Methylex or Uricatool or Adaptive Touch. You'll see tubular retention dressings like Tubafast or just, you know, that regular netting type dressing, just holding it all together because you can't use tape. Thanks for that overview. I mean, obviously, we we make videos on these subjects, and we would probably need you to look look and edit our script on EB. We only have a small part of one video on EB, but obviously, we're going to change that for this coming year. So I think we'll we'll approach you given your knowledge base and and direct experience with this. So you know, given all that, Ryan, what is Michael's like day to day experience like? What is your family's day to day experience like? Well, we want Michael to live every day to the fullest. So I mean, I'm a life living condition that's always on mine but there's certain things we have to do if i had to sum up michael's day it's probably fear and pain unfortunately and it's um constant pain the sores all over his body um and the fear is really the anticipation of pain so that sometimes is worse than the actual pain even in bandage changes i mean before it happens he thinks it's going to hurt right he thinks of that worst time it happened when it was ripped off and he feels like it's going to be that so sometimes you just have to get it done to let him relax he is worried until he gets him taken care of so i mean most of his days start when we wake him up give him a little chance to get out of bed sometimes the bandages come off the sheets stick to his wounds you kind of have to rip them off do some spot treating before he gets dressed um he has his medication his food most of his nutrition comes through drinking so he takes a lot of boosts and he has a lot of formula through his g-tube he also sometimes has blisters on his eyes like heather mentioned so if you have to wake him up i mean getting up a little early that might take a little while to get his eyes open and get used to the light in the morning um brushing his teeth fixing his hair takes longer than normal you can actually open skin just with a brush either in your mouth or on your hair and then he's off to school he is in 11th grade um he's been without an aide for the last two years which was amazing he had someone follow him around up till then carrying his book bag he's doesn't like that anymore it messes with his independence and his friends <laughs> um he does have a wheelchair he can walk and move around but with anemia he runs out of energy quickly and his seat's also really comfortable on his wheelchair and he likes that better than the seats at school it helps for his blisters on his behind um, he, he does leave his wheelchair, they say, at school and goes out and plays with his friends and sometimes even sneaks off a of campus. But he does come back to his uh, wheelchair because he does get tired quickly. Um, EB is degenerative. 
but at the same time, as he's getting older, he's doing an amazing job at adapting and coping and becoming more independent. So I feel like we're, even though it's degenerative, I feel like we're making progress on the good side every year. Um, and then, then there's the bandages. So, I mean, bandages is that necessary evil. We got to do it. We have to do it every day. We do it in the evenings. Um, you have to do it to protect him. So, and then help the wounds he has heals. It starts with a bleach bath where he soaks for a few hours to make sure the bandages come off as easy as possible. And then without going into too much detail, you spot treat the torso and then do each limb individually with the multiple layers. Um, it usually takes three to four hours from when we start to when he gives Heather a hug and heads off back into his room to play some games. <laughs> um, we still haven't been desensitized to the screams that happen from that or the disappointment on his face from not being able to enjoy the day-to-day -day things that he sees his friends do but hopefully someday he will but like riding a bike is hard yeah if we have to get a three-wheeler um he can't run if he does you're scared to death he's gonna trip uh eating rips up his throat if he eats too much but you want him to enjoy things and try it swimming he loves to swim but every time he swims you got to go spend three hours doing bandages afterwards so i mean you really have to want to swim um even just being outside in the heat is just standing outside in the direct sun he can't do that and that's why we're happy we're in Oregon now where there's more seasons and it's a little more mild Southern California it was a uh, causing to be prisoners inside either our home or the school buildings um and even the last thing is I mean even when you hug him you have to be careful and make sure you don't squeeze too tight you could at least he goes ow or uh, a little softer softer he does love hugs he just wants them soft <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank, thank you for painting that picture. That's really, really helpful. Um, I'm curious, uh, you know, because there's some things that obviously are not the day-to-day -day existence of the vast majority of people who don't have, have this condition or live with someone who has that condition. There's other things that are very normal or average, like playing video games or uh, not wanting the aide to follow them around. You know, you said he's in 11th grade. I remember I watched that Mikey's World video, which I'll, we put in the show notes. It's really well done and, and gives you kind of a snippet of a day in the life of, of Mikey and, and your family. But what, um, you know, since he's going to 11th grade, what are his thoughts? Is, does he think he wants to go to college somewhere close home or, or how, how are you guys thinking about this? Um, I would say he's still undecided. <laughs> he does say, though, that he does want to stick close to home. He wants to, to stick close to us, which we don't mind. We love that. But he he does have, you know, this interest in animating. But at the same time, he also says he wants to open up a pizza restaurant. So, I mean, it, it could go either way. <laughs> yeah, that's also a very normal thing. If he is interested in illustrating or animating, let us know because I mean, we that's something we uh, we obviously do quite a bit of at Osmosis and have people who've done not just medical illustration. We have 30 of them on staff, 30 people like that, but people who've come from other types of graphic design, illustration, creative world. So uh, let's put that out there. And he goes to a high school that's more of like a career focus. So he actually is a digital media major. That's awesome. That's great. So let's go into actually the EB Research Partnership. There's a lot to discuss there. Um, you know, one of the things that obviously you guys are really well known for is partnering with Jill and Eddie Vader. Uh, many people know Eddie Vader from Pearl Jam. Um, so you started this EB Research Partnership. How did that come about? Uh, and then can you give us an overview of the size and scope of the foundation? Yeah, so I'll start off with that one. So Jill is a really close friend, family of mine. Um, after Mikey was born, we always saw her at family events, and she always wanted to know how she could help. 
So, I mean, Jill's mom and my mom were really good friends. So we were always around each other growing up. My sister was Jill's best friend. I had another sister that was also best friend with Jill's little sister, Denise. So family vacations, we were always around. So when we they grew up and they saw Michael, her and Ed were always very inquisitive about EB, um, what options of treatments existed for him, wanted to know more about it. They even wanted to be introduced to researchers. We had calls with multiple researchers um, talking about EB, what was out there. I think one of Ed's questions, which I thought was amazing once, was how much money do you need right now to cure EB? And, right, and the answer is there's no amount of money. It doesn't work like that, right? But that's really where we started learning about what we needed to do. Um, Jill wanted everyone to know about EB and wanted to help find a cure for Michael. Um, we raised funds a number of years just for other nonprofits and had she had individuals giving donations directly to Stanford, but we felt like we needed to do more. They wanted to do more. Um, so we finally got to the point where Michael was little. We were actually, I think, up at their house talking about what we could do going forward. We had successful having some eBay fundraisers. Um, I think we raised a hundred grand on an eBay auction just from Jill writing a letter about Michael and asking her friends, like Tom Petty gave us box set. Ed gave some ukuleles. We just had a one week eBay and they made a hundred thousand dollars. So Jill's comment was, let's do as much as we can. Let's start a nonprofit. And she told me to go start it and make it big. So that was always my goal is to try and start it and make it big. So we always felt like we had to grow it as quick as possible. Um, it's a life limiting disease. We didn't have time to just grow an organization. There were other ones out there, but we wanted to get started. We wanted to try and boost what everything was doing. I mean, you've talked to a lot of rare disease organizations, as you know, a lot of rare disease organizations have problems even hitting that million dollar mark on an annual basis. And we knew we needed to be beyond that to really get the cure going. Money was really what was holding up the research at all the places. So we met another organization in New York that had the same goal. They wanted to just fund research. They wanted as much money to go to research as possible. Um, me and the other father of the organization always talk about the two organizations. It really was a one plus one equals three scenario. We didn't just take two organizations and stack them on top of each other. We took two organizations that had synergies that together really blew up. We merged in 2014. The year we merged, we became part of the Microsoft Giving Campaign that year. Ed played a concert in Seattle um, between the Microsoft Giving Campaign and our annual gala in New York. We made $2 million our first year. So not only did we hit that threshold of a million, we really wanted to see we doubled it, far exceeded it. The next year, we were growing our team. We had another family that had multiple members with EB and their own family nonprofit joined. Um, with them joining, they gave us a $3 million donation to help us get over $5 million in our second year of existence. Uh, the third year, we did that $5 million again. We, had, we said we always had a miracle happen every year. We've been able to keep that going at this point. But the third year was our first venture philanthropy agreement that paid out, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But since then, we've been able to kind of sustain the 5 million plus of giving on an annual basis, which really has allowed us to continue the funding, the research that's working, as well as making sure there's extra money to put into the new stuff that comes up, right? We don't want all our eggs to go into one basket. 
That's incredible. I mean, that, that backstory is incredible. And actually, this could be a good time to talk about the venture philanthropy because I found that innovative. And now I know, given your Silicon Valley startup experience, where some of those ideas may have come from. So maybe let's go into that and then we'll turn it over to Heather to talk a bit about kind of the cure, how hopeful we are that it's within reach and, and what are some of the most promising candidates. But uh, but Ryan, you want to talk about venture philanthropy and, and how what other rare disease groups may learn from that approach? Yeah. So, I mean, venture philanthropy is, I mean, we like to explain it as a investing to impact social good with a chance of return on that investment, right? Um, in our early days, when we were trying to figure it out, we actually had the pleasure of being introduced to Robert Buell with the CF Foundation. Bob was the CEO of the CF Foundation um, when they created their first venture philanthropy contract in early 2000. Um, we were able to talk to him about the fundamentals of venture philanthropy. We were able to pick his brain about what percentage of return you're able to ask for and what other clauses you were able to ask for with the amount of money we were giving. Uh, he introduced us to, to attorneys, and that's really where we were able to learn the framework of what to put in a contract for venture philanthropy. Um, that same year, we actually talked to him. That's the year the CF Foundation, 2014, received the $3.3 billion as a payout on their original venture philanthropy agreements. And they're considered the first rare disease that everybody's heard of, right? They only have 40,000 patients worldwide, but because of the venture philanthropy and the $3 billion, everybody knows what CF is. They are a poster child. They are the example of what we would like to be. And hopefully if we can get something anywhere near that amount, we can not only cure EB, but cure all the zebras out there, which is our goal. We just want to do EB first. <laughs> That's awesome. That's really awesome. I mean, so if you think about venture philanthropy, it's like a mutual fund of possible EB treatments, right? If you think about venture capital or private equity, they're really taking their money and they're going out there investing in companies they believe in just because they believe they'll make money, right? So typically you might go out there and buy Tesla or Google or Meta or these companies, you might not believe in them. You might actually might hate them, but you think they're going to make value and you think they're going to make you money. So you invest in them, you put that in your pool, that's typical investing, right? We're doing it where EB is our social impact and we're putting money in companies and actually even starting companies and building the management teams at the start to help EB, right? With the goal that not only to cure EB, hopefully something comes of it from a commercial perspective and we'll get more money that we can put back either into that or other type of research going on out there. So. What do you get with a venture philanthropy? I mean, you get potentially returns many time over. I mentioned earlier that venture philanthropy agreement, our one that paid out our third year, uh, we got three million. It was multiple uh, times what we put in. Originally, I think it might have been six times what we put in originally. But not only did we get the payout from that, they actually took over the research, did it quicker, and we didn't have to pay any of the future money for that because they covered that cost. And I think they did it three times quicker than we were projecting it would have taken if we would have just funded it with Stanford ourselves. Right. So, I mean, there's a lot of good things that come out of venture philanthropy and having contracts. I mean, you also could put things in the contracts allowing um, requiring research updates every six months, requiring updates when milestones are hit. Um, we fund one year at a time. So every year they're showing us what they can achieve in that year. Um, they have to come back to us to get another year of funding. When we first started, there were a lot of times people would come up to us and say, we can Curie B, we want $5 million. Um, we'd sit down with the scientific, we'd really sit down with the scientific advisory board and say, okay, what, what are they really trying to do here? We'd go back to them and say, well, here's what you're really trying to do. We'll give you X 
which is usually a few hundred thousand dollars to go back and see if you can prove this works and come back to us. And if you can come back to us, we will give you more, but we're not giving you the $5 million right now. That's very smart. I love how it's all kind of framework. We know a lot about the VC space. Uh, one of my advisors and former board members is Alan Patrikoff, who helped start the VC industry, Graycroft, so kind of said a lot of those terms that, that we're all kind of very familiar with now. But this venture philanthropy, CF Foundation did it, now EV Research Partnerships doing really well, is fascinating. I, I definitely would love to have our audience check it out more. And wh where can they learn about it? Like, is there something you guys have on your site or, or uh, just Googling it? Um, yeah, you can go to our website, ebresearch.org. We have actually have videos that explain it really well um, and even ex can explain it in layman's terms. Um, if you're not familiar with all of the technical terms, sometimes I get lost with them as well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of them. I mean, go ahead. Sorry, Ryan. I was going to say, we'd love to introduce you to our CEO, Michael Hunt. I mean, he can do a two hour probably podcast on just venture philanthropy and he's he's a great guy. Yeah, we'll definitely keep, we should pull on this thread and pick your guys' brains more because we're trying to find ways to align incentives, which is ultimately what this is all about. How do you incentivize all these different stakeholders to work towards the common goal, which is curing EB and other zebras, as you said. So on that note of curing EB, you know, how hopeful are you that a cure is within reach and what would it look like? We're extremely hopeful for a cure. And I mean, it's a possibility now that you know, Michael will see it in his lifetime and get to benefit from it. And just to clarify, I mean, a, a cure to me is, you know, a treatment that dramatically increases the quality of life and the life expectancy for those living with EB. Um, you know, I believe that the cure will most likely also be a combination of both topical and systemic delivery. Um, and I don't think it's going to be you know, a one and done cure, but it might be more of a reoccurring treatment that, you know, staves off symptoms and complications. You know, one particular treatment that we hope to see get approved in the next year is a topical for dystrophic EB. And it was created by a company called Crystal Biotech. Um, it's called BVEC. Um, it's a gene therapy that delivers two copies of the collagen 7 gene directly into the womb bed, and it provides the patient's cells with the information needed to make normal functional collagen seven. Um, and the results they got from their phase three clinical trials showed that, you know, when BVAC was applied, complete wound healing was possible and that the wounds remained closed at the three and the six month time points. So, I mean, you know, what that means for us personally is that, you know, when this treatment and, you know, I'm almost positive it's going to get approved, um, this means that when it's available for Michael, we're going to be able to put it on his wounds. And some of those have been open for years, unfortunately, but we're going to be able to put him on these wounds, see them close and see, you know, just the relief that he gets from, you know, having this pain gone. And it'll be even sweeter of a moment because, you know, this particular project we supported as a nonprofit early on. And so to see it, make it all the way through and to have it be a treatment that our son can use it's you know it's gratifying both as a parent and you know as a nonprofit it just makes it all worthwhile um and it's extremely gratifying as a parent because a lot of times you feel helpless there's nothing you can do for your child with a rare disease but in this one instance you've been able to guide and help come to fruition on a treatment and that's what i think about the cure <laughs> That's awesome. That's really, yeah, it's so meaningful. I can't imagine something 
more meaningful, something that directly affects you and your family, and then you know has the potential to affect many, many other people, not just the people who are affected by it, but clearly the research being done in EB may elucidate things that could affect other, maybe more common dermatologic or other conditions. So do you want to add anything to that, Ryan? And or maybe we can transition into some of the work that you're most excited about with EB Research Partnership and how you and Heather and your teams continue to extend the reach to increase awareness of EB. I would add only, you know, to his when talking about the work of EBRP, from the time we were founded, you know, we've been able to help raise over $40 million for EB research. And, you know, to make sure that those funds are applied responsibly, you know, we established a scientific advisory board that Ryan mentioned, you know, and it's comprised of geneticists, chemists, dermatologists, and, you know, EB clinicians. Um, and it's all to vet the research before we actually fund it. And we've been able to support over 100 projects uh, by having a call for grants twice a year. Um, and we really try to push research forward by having you know, a couple of requirements, one being that the research must be able to be commercialized within one to four years and must lead to you know, a significant and meaningful change to quality of life. Um, you know, we also try to use those funds to support consortiums like that of the EB Clinical Research Consortium or EBCRC. And so this is an international group of EB clinicians that treat EB patients. And they also gather data in order to develop better protocols, better procedure for the treatment of EB. So that while we're waiting on this cure, we're also trying to help, you know, in the present, um, getting these protocols in place so that EB patients can have better quality of life. I'm glad you brought that up because I mean, when we first started, that's why I always said with a non-medical background, I feel like a lot of this stuff is science fiction, right? You hear about CRISPR and Cas9 and how it worked. And you're just like, I don't even understand how that's possible. But with the scientific advisory board, it makes all of us feel happy that there's real scientists looking at it saying, yes, there's a chance this will work. And that's all we want to hear, right? Plus, I mean, we also want to make sure we're funding multiple things. Because even if we think something... Like maybe that looks like the best cure right now, but by the time it comes out, maybe there's something better, or maybe that really isn't what we were hoping. So I'm glad that we're raising the amount of money we need to be able to continue to fund the new stuff that's coming out, but also continue to fund the stuff that appears to be working. Yeah, absolutely. And again, that's kind of the, the bucket model of venture philanthropy, placing multiple bets and seeing which ones will come out and hopefully multiple will win. Um, so, you know, actually to you, Ryan, again, on upcoming events and or things you guys are doing to advocate and extend your reach to increase awareness of EB and, and anything our audience should know about that. Yeah. So, I mean, we have a mixture of events and I mean, a lot of our donations come online from a large other nonprofits or high net worth individuals. Um, we have number families having events annually um, all over the United States. We have a plunge that happens nationally where people go dump into the ocean or a lake all over the place. Um, we had an annual event in New York on an annual basis, our gal. We're having that again this year. You're welcome to come as our guest, of course, Shiv, if you're in the area. But what we're also having, our virtual event was kind of created through COVID. So out of this horrible global pandemic, our CEO, Michael Hund, kind of turned this time where we thought we were going to lose our biggest fundraising event, and he created Venture Into Cures. And it's a annual event we've had for the last two years. We're having it again this year. Um, we've had over a million views. Tom Holland, Spider-Man, is the actual host. Uh, there's a number of celebrities in it, and it's just it's an amazing event that he's kind of used to help celebrities tell different EB 
individuals and family stories, which is really what we wanted when the idea of EB Research Partners first started. We didn't want to have people have to set up their own nonprofit to raise money for EB. We wanted something that everyone felt like was their own so we could use the cumulative buying power of everyone to help push this thing along. Um, we have a nonprofit in Australia as well, an Australia branch. They have a cotton ball in March to April timeframe every year in Australia. So there's things happening all over the place. That's super exciting. And I remember when you told me about the, the Tom Holland connection, Spider-Man getting involved. It's, it's wonderful to see people, again, like your friend Jill Vetter and her, and her husband Ed Vetter coming in who have a personal connection, obviously, by being friends with you all and knowing Michael. But I don't know what Tom's connection is, but it seems really exciting when people spend their time and their influence to, to help with this stuff. Well, Tom, I think, has his own nonprofit called Brothers Trust, and they do a lot of good things, but have taken us as one of their kind of missions under their wing. And it was a connection through our CEO, Michael Hunt, found, and it, he's been truly amazing for us. And then I don't know if you've heard it also, our first Ventures for Your Cure, there's actually a song that Eddie Vedder wrote called Matter of Time. He actually wrote that song for the first Ventures into Your Cure and created a music video. And that was premiered at the end of our first year. But I mean, if you're in your car and you're an Alexa, just say, play Eddie Vedder, Matter of Time. It is an amazing song. My son likes it so much that he says, I don't want to listen to it right now. It'll make me cry. But it kind of talks about the journey and it's only a matter of time until we find a cure. That's awesome. I'll, I'll make sure to listen to that after this podcast. And I've already taken you both 15 minutes over what we were scheduled because this is fascinating. There's so much to talk about. Um, and so I did want to just ask one and a half more questions, if that's OK with you. The first is, I mean, this is one that I think is really meaningful to our audience, you know, current and future healthcare professionals primarily. What advice would you give them wearing your multiple hats? I mean, obviously... Heather, you're, you're a clinician, so as a peer, but then Ryan and Heather as people who advocate for EB research, uh, parents who are caregivers, what advice would you give to them about being most helpful to the rare disease and, and EB communities? My advice, you know, to any student or new clinician that ends up treating, you know, a child with EB is you want to first establish rapport with that child and with that family. And you do that by asking before attempting any type of physical contact with EB because it's on the skin. Um, it can be painful, even getting a blood pressure or temperature, starting IVs and other invasive procedures, you know, could require taking off bandages. So really transparency with parents, listening to parents is key. You know, they know their child's extensive and, you know, complicated medical histories and their tolerances. You know, you don't, just want to go taking off a bandage, you could end up causing, you know, some minor trauma. Um, so I would say, you know, communicate with parents and just really try to establish rapport and communication. The second thing, you know, I would kind of emphasize is that when you're treating a child with EB, that you use an interdisciplinary approach. So what I mean by that is, I mean, reach out to your colleagues in different departments and specialties, you know, gather a team, gather support, find people you feel comfortable conversing and collaborating with, you know, as you're developing this plan of care. And you want to introduce parents early on to clinicians that are in fields like infectious disease, hematology, gastroenterology, um, psychologists, chronic pain specialists, social workers. I mean, there's a number, but you want to establish these specialists before they're actually needed so that um, when there's a problem, you know, we're not scrambling at the last minute to try and figure out who it is we can see. And I mean, this is a team that's going to be a lifeline and a lifelong resource for the parents. So, you know, get them established early. 
That's some great advice for sure. Uh, how about you, Ryan? Same thing. Just more. So, I mean, listen to the parents. I mean, even we feel like we know EB, but someone else's kid would be a completely different story. And it's hard when you're seeing a lot of patients to just to understand what that person's going through, not even just in that day, but over the last month. And it's just make sure you feel like you're partnering with the parent and not just this doctor that's coming in and making assumptions and think that you know the right answer. Because you might, even if it is right for one child with the same or disease, it might be different for a different child. Totally. Putting the patient first and the care team is not just the physician and the nurse and the PA. It's most importantly, the patient and their family and caregivers. So that's important. And so again, we're coming up in time. I want to be respectful. I did want to ask really briefly, is there anything else you wanted to be able to share with our audience before we let you go for the rest of the day? We talked about, we liked the idea of having some kind of either wound care or video specifically on, I mean, for us, for EB, but maybe, I mean, you mentioned maybe trying to do that something for all rare diseases to where if someone knows they're having a patient with EB coming in, that they can sit down and either watch this two minute or five minute or 10 minute video on specific things so they can not become the expert, but at least know what to ask about or what to focus on. Absolutely. Uh, we're definitely doing that. And so I, I, we talked about this uh, big initiative we're doing next year to raise awareness for many of the zebras, the rare conditions, including EB for sure. But yeah, that we are a teaching company and we love being able to, to do these deep dive videos on these conditions, but also the specific knowledge that I know you both as parents and Heather, you as a, a wound care nurse know about treating EB specifically. So we'll definitely be in touch about some of those opportunities. Yeah. Um, I would just add, I would selfishly love to see one made about wound care. <laughs> wound care, it's more than just applying a Band-Aid. It's, you know, it's a whole body approach. It's, you know, getting to the root cause, creating individualized like plans of care, um, you know, to decrease healing time. And just a side note, I mean, when you're treating someone with EB, it's not the same as treating someone who has like a diabetic ulcer or burn, you know, you're going to want to use non-adherent dressings and avoid tape at all costs. Even the way you wrap, you want to make sure that the bandages aren't going to slip and slide against the skin because the bandages then end up causing trauma. So I would say, you know, there's definitely a need for wound care videos, maybe even a series of them. There's a lot of information out there. I'll definitely bring that back. I know we're getting a lot of our content CE accredited. We offer over 250 hours of CE. So this would be a perfect one to be able to offer. So we'll we'll put a pin in that and follow up. And just Heather and Ryan, really appreciate you taking the time to be on the podcast with us. But more importantly, the work that you're doing for Michael and so many other people and their family members who have EB, uh, it's inspiring and I wish you guys both the best. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. And thank you for what you're doing with this podcast as well. Thank you. And with that, thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. I'm Shivaglani and remember to do your part to raise line and strengthen our healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. Mm-hmm.